You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Of John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. We're going to read the first 13 verses together. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's bow together and ask God's blessing on our time of study. Our Father, we come now to Your Word, and it is with expectant hearts that we do so. All that we have sung to You and said to You today is of little importance compared to what you have to say to us in your word. So we pray now that you would fix our hearts and our minds and our attention upon this revelation and upon these verses. We ask that you would give to us understanding and illumination in your word and enlighten our minds and our eyes by your word. We pray, Father, that you would give us the grace to understand and may your spirit be our teacher and may your word be our guide, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin with something I always love to do at the beginning of any sermon, and that is to clarify something I said last week. And it's always better to do that at the beginning so that I don't forget. Last week I made the statement or said something to the effect that we were talking about evil and how God created all things, Christ created all things as the creator of all things. And then I raised the question, does that mean then that Jesus is the creator of evil? So therefore he's responsible for evil. And uh, I said that evil is not a thing that was created, nor is it something that exists as a created thing, like the sun, moon, the stars, and things of that nature, but that evil is something that mars an otherwise good creation. And uh, let me clarify, I said evil doesn't exist, and I used illustrations like the shadow, you remember, in the donut hole, and cold, as things that don't exist in and of themselves as created entities, but as things that we use to describe the absence of something else. And uh, that is true with evil, but here's how it may be misunderstood, and this is why I want to clarify. That's not to say that evil doesn't exist, period. Because evil is real. And evil people are real. And evil is a real thing. And evil is a real description that really describes real things. Satan does exist. Evil exists, not as a created thing, but as something that mars a good creation. And evil exists not in the same way that the sun, the moon, and the stars exist. We say that God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, but then we cannot at the same time think that God created evil and sort of threw it down into His creation. 
Creation was good, and it had goodness because it was a derived goodness. God is Himself infinitely good. Creation was good because it got that goodness from God. We are responsible for marring an otherwise good creation by our evil acts. Man, men have brought into an otherwise good creation a lack of goodness, and it suffers from a lack of goodness which is evil because of our acts. And why I needed to clarify that, was because I heard, read a passage from the shack that used the same illustrations that I did, but teaching something entirely different. And anytime you hear yourself quoted in the shack or find yourself quoting the shack, you either have to go jump off a cliff or you have to begin to clarify or straighten out your theology because you will never find more heresy presented in a more condensed form than you will find in the shack. So I wanted to clarify what I meant by evil does not exist as a created thing God did not create evil. He did create creatures who had the capacity to bring evil into his creation and to become evil. And we did. Satan did and we did and Adam did by his own choice. So, finishing with that, so you don't think I was quoting the shack or I get my theology from the shack, let's move on to John chapter 1. And if you're wondering about the shack or why you should run from that as if you've seen a Sasquatch, then talk to me after the service and I'll be happy to explain to you why that book is filled with heresy. Actually, not why it's filled with heresy, but what heresy is in the book. John chapter 1, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 6 through 9. After I, after our introduction to the book of John, I made the statement that John doesn't refer to himself by name in the gospel. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved a few times throughout the book, but he never names himself as the author. And that can created a little bit of confusion in my home because after that first sermon, one of my children came up and said, but doesn't John identify himself as John right here? It says in chapter one that a man was sent from God whose name was John. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Isn't that the author of the gospel of John? Now, I can understand that question because I'll be honest with you. When I first became a believer, I picked up the book of John and I read the book of John and I read through chapter one. And I assumed that the guy that is spoken of in John chapter one was the author of the book. Because the author says, a man came from God whose name was John, and that John was sent to testify and bear witness about the light. And I thought, this book is testimony and witness about the light, and this book is all about the light. So, this John, this must be the one who wrote the book. Now, since I did not grow up in a Christian family, and I had never seen a commentary in my life, or even a study Bible in my life when I got saved, for a couple of years, I kind of operated under that assumption until actually I got to Bible college and then I found out that the John spoken of in John chapter 1 is different than the John that wrote the book. There are a lot of Johns. In fact, there are two Johns mentioned in the book of John that's not the author John. There's John the Baptist and then there's John, the father of Peter, who's also named four times in this book later on, but not John John, the author of John. So don't get them confused and don't think that now as we're talking about John that we mean John the Apostle or John Peter's dad. John is just like Jim or Joe or John in our day, a common name back then. The John being spoken of here is John the Baptist, a different John. And he's introduced in verse 6 through 8. Now, verses 1 through 5, we have seen John, the author. This is going to be hard for the next chapter, isn't it? We've seen John, the author. You know, this last week when I sat down to write this sermon... Over and over, I kept referring to John, and then I, I kept thinking, I have to find some way so that they're not wondering, which John is he talking about? Is he talking about John the Baptist or John the Apostle? So just assume whichever John makes sense to you when I say John. 
John, in verses 1 through 5, gives us a description of the infinite eternal Word. He was God. He was with God. He is life. He is life. And He is the Creator of all things. That is so unmistakable, so uh, unambiguous, so clear, so straightforward, so unconfusing affirmation of the absolute, total deity, divinity, Godhood of Jesus Christ's essence. That He is by essence, by substance, in nature, in person, in every way, completely equal with God. He was with God and He was God. Then in verses 6, through really the remainder of the chapter, our focus is shifted to something else. A man sent from God whose name was John. And the testimony that John bears witness to, that of the light. So beginning at verse 6, and we're just going to cover verses 6 through 9, there came a man sent from God. And let me kind of give you a sort of a, a brief outline that we'll, that we'll sort of focus our thoughts on this morning. There, verse 6, we're going to see John, or the, the, sorry, the person of John. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. We're going to look at who this John is, where he came from, and why he was sent from God. Then in verse 7, we get the purpose of John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. That's why he came. Then in verses 8 and 9, John's place. He was not the light. And this is his place as pertaining to the one who is the light. He is not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. There was the true light, which gives light, or enlighten, who coming into the world enlightens every man. So we're going to look at the person of John, the purpose of John, and then the place of John in relationship to the one who is the eternal word. You're going to see throughout the Gospel of John two themes that are developed side by side. And I want to give you a heads up on this now, and I'll show you how this is developed even here in the first chapter. All the way through the Gospel of John, you're going to see two sort of parallel train tracks. The first track is the theme of testimony or witness. You see it introduced here in chapter 1. You're going to see it in nearly every chapter in the book of John, this theme of witness or testimony. And John, through his Gospel, lines up the witnesses, the testifiers, the people who were reliable eyewitnesses who could testify to the Word. And you're going to see the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the works that Jesus did, the words that Jesus said, the masses, Moses, the disciples, all of these people lined up as people who can bear witness and testify to the nature of the Word. That's one theme. On the other train track, you have a second theme that is developed all the way from chapter 1 through the end of the book. And that is that in response to the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, people will respond in one of only two possible ways. Either belief or unbelief. Either they will receive that testimony or they will reject that testimony. So the one theme is the witnesses and the people who can testify. And all of the things that bear witness to the light, the Word, the eternal God made flesh. And on the other theme is, there is only two ways that you can respond to this. Belief or unbelief. And through the rest of the Gospel, John plays this out. These are the results of belief. And this is what you get for unbelief. You got that? Those are the two train tracks. I want you to notice how they're developed here in the first chapter of John. In verses 6 through 8, or 6 through 9, we have John bearing witness to the light, testifying about the light. Now that's the one theme. Now look at verse 10. 
One of two possible responses. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came into his own and his own did not receive him. That is what? Rejection. But there's a second possible response. Verse 12 and 13. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. That's the second possible response. Then down in verse 15, you see the testimony of John again. John testified about him, that is the light, and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And then in verse 19, it says, This is the testimony of John. And for the rest of the chapter, really, you kind of get glimpses of this testimony of John, the Baptist. And then over in chapter, at the end of chapter 1, you start to get some of the responses. In verse 37, John says, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And two of John's disciples leave John and go to follow Jesus. And John was fine with that because, as he says later, he must increase and I must decrease. So two of John's disciples went and left and followed Jesus. Then later on in verse 41, I think it is, we get the response of Simon Peter. Belief. Then in verse 44, we get the response of Philip. Belief. Then down in verse 49, we get the response of Nathaniel. Belief. So you see in chapter 1, the testimony of John, and here's how some people responded, and here's how other people responded. And that's going to be the way it is all the way through the book of John. So I'm just giving you a heads up. Let's look at the first thing, verse 6. We see John's person. John writes, there came a man who sent from God whose name was John. Now, who is this character who stepped onto human history? It's kind of an abrupt change. I mean, you read verses 1 through 5 and your focus is on heaven and the eternal word and the one who was with God, the one who was God, the uncreated creator, the unsustained sustainer, the one who had no beginning, who was life, who was light. Verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. And all of a sudden, our focus has changed. We shift from the uncreated Creator to one of His creatures. We shift from the one who is life in Himself to one who has derived life from the Son of God. We shift from heaven, as it were, to earth. From eternity to time. And it's a very abrupt way of of sort of changing our focus. There came a man, or there stepped onto history. Really, the word means there appeared. There appeared into human history, into this redemptive plan of God, A man whose name was John. And he's just a man. Just a man. He's distinguished from the Word. He's distinguished from the uncreated Creator, from the Eternal One, the One that had no beginning. He is distinguished from Him as just a man. There appeared into human history a man, and his name was John. Now John, the Baptist, is so significant that he is mentioned in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Remember the Synoptics are Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels all mention John. In Matthew chapter 3, it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. In Mark chapter 1, Mark introduces his Gospel with John's testimony. Mark chapter 1, verses 1-4, through the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John the Baptist is mentioned in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke. 
A good portion of two chapters of Luke is devoted to the birth narrative of John the Baptist. And we, there we meet his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, and we're told about how they became pregnant with John the Baptist and, and how Mary met Elizabeth and what happened there and all of those events surrounding John. Why is he so significant? He is a man sent from God. His name is John. What does it mean when he says that he was a man sent from God? The uh, I almost said the Apostle John. John the Baptist was a man sent from God, and his significance is seen in a number of things. First, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning a forerunner. Somebody who was to step onto the scene who would announce the presence of the Lord. In fact, that's how John describes himself in John chapter 1, verse 23. Look what he says. He said, I am as a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet says. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where Isaiah predicts the ministry of John the Baptist, who would step onto the scene and make ready the people for the coming of the Lord. He's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning a man who would come to herald or announce the presence of God in the world. You see a prophecy, for instance, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's a statement of the deity of Christ, is it not? God will come to his temple. And Malachi says, before God, whom you seek, comes to his temple, I am going to send my messenger before him so that you might know who he is. So that you might know the one who is the Lord, whom you seek, who is now coming into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, listen, the Old Testament ends with these words. Behold, I am coming to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And that's what John the Baptist came to do. And with that, the Old Testament ends. I'm going to to come, Malachi. The Lord says, I'm going to come. I'm going to come into my temple. And before I do, I'm going to send my spokesman. And he is going to announce my presence. And then you have 400 years of silence. And then John the Baptist arrives and says, he's here. Chilling, isn't it? God is coming to his temple. And that was the role of John the Baptist. He was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the one who was to come and announce the presence and herald the arrival of the Messiah, the Word made flesh. Second, John is significant in that his his conception and his birth were both miraculous. They were miraculous. Not virgin born. Misunderstand that. But both of John's parents were advanced in years, the implication being that they were beyond childbearing age, And Elizabeth, his mother, had been barren and had never had any children. And then suddenly she is pregnant with child. And the angel revealed that that was a miraculous thing, that this was of the Lord. So her birth was a miraculous, it happened by the intervention of God. Not a virgin birth, but a miracle nonetheless. Just like Samuel. Third, John the Baptist's birth was announced by an angel who appeared to his parents in Luke chapter 1. You catch all this in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2. Fourth, John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and uttered a prophecy concerning his son. So there was prophecy uttered concerning John the Baptist. You read the Gospel of Luke and you get the, you get the distinct feeling that this individual, John the Baptist, is filling a role that no other Old Testament prophet had ever filled. 
And fifth, John was significant in that he was sent by the Lord at a divinely appointed time. Luke 180 says he lived out in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He didn't come out of the womb prophesying. He wasn't a young boy, 12, 13, prophesying. He lived under the radar, as it were, out in the deserts, away from people's notice, until the day, Luke says, of his appearance, a divinely commissioned day, when the Lord said to him, now is the time. Now you begin. Start announcing the arrival of the Messiah. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He appeared on the scene 400 years after the the previous Old Testament prophet, Malachi. There was 400 years of silence before John arrived, and all of the people recognized John as a genuine prophet. And they accepted him as such. And they acknowledged this is a man that is sent from God. And he is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And here's why. All of the other Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, all of them talked about and foretold the coming of the Messiah. But John got to see it. All the other Old Testament prophets died before they ever saw the day that they spoke of. But John stepped onto the scene and he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because he was given the responsibility and the privilege of being the one to announce the arrival of the Messiah. So he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets in that he actually got to see everything that all the Old Testament saints only looked forward to and hoped would be realized in their day. And then John had the most significant task ever given to a prophet. And what was his task? To point to somebody else and say, this is the one. This is the one that all of the Old Testament Scriptures bear witness to. This is the one that our people have longed for and looked for for centuries. This is the one that all of the Old Testament points to, foreshadows, pictures, and promises. He is here. The Lord has come to His temple. This is God in human flesh. This is the light. This is the life. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the best thing that could ever be given to any individual. To stand in the presence of the Word made flesh and to point to Him and to say, this is the one bow down in worship. And that's what John was given. That leads us to his purpose. Look at his person. He's a man sent from God. What was his purpose? Verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might live, I believe, through him. He came as a marturo. It's the word from which we get our English word martyr. It means to testify or a witness. Back in John's day, it simply was a sort of a court term that was used of somebody who was a reliable witness who would give testimony in court. Eventually, the term martyr came to refer to people who would give ultimate testimony concerning the truth of something by laying down their lives as evidence that this was true. So the apostles became martyrs or witnesses that they witnessed or testified to the truth of God and who Jesus was and what Jesus had done, and they bore the ultimate testimony in laying down their lives. They became martyrs or witnesses for the sake of the Gospel. Is it not unfortunate that in our day, that word has been hijacked to refer to people who bear testimony to a lie by blowing themselves up? Isn't that a travesty of the English language that a word has been hijacked like that? Properly used, it would refer to anybody who gave testimony or bore witness to something, a martyr, but a martyr is somebody in our sense, and I think in the proper biblical sense, who bears testimony to something even by being willing to die for what they know to be true. 
That is what a martyr was. He came as a witness to testify. It's a verb form of the same word for martyr, to testify concerning the light. His job was to bear witness to the light. Now, as far as we know, John the Baptist, though he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, as far as we know, he never performed a single miracle. And I think there's a good reason why that is the case. I'll give you a second to see if you can think of why that's the case. Why do you think it is that John the Baptist would, did not perform any miracles? There was enough confusion concerning who John was in the New Testament. You see it even in the Gospel of John. The priests and the Levites send people to him with questions. Are you the prophet? Are you the coming one? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Who are you? There was enough confusion concerning him and some thinking that he was the prophet. He was the Christ. That when he stepped on the scene, had he, pre- per, uh, had he performed miracles or worked wonders, that would have simply distracted from his mission, which was to point to somebody else. Anything that John would have done to draw attention to himself would have distracted from his true testimony, which was to bear witness to somebody else. So he didn't perform any miracles. He didn't do any signs. He simply stepped onto the scene and said, this is the one. Look at him. I'm bearing witness to him. As great of a man as you think I am, and it was true, he was a great man, he is the one that is worthy of your attention. Because he must increase and I must decrease. He must go up and I must go down. I'm going to pass from the scene, and even though I showed up on the scene before him, he existed long before I did. Eternity passed. So he was to bear witness or testimony to the light. I love the simplicity of John's ministry. Because, friends, that's exactly what you and I are to do. We're just simply to bear witness to the light. The role of a preacher or a teacher is not to stand up in front of God's people and draw attention to himself by entertaining people or giving silly anecdotes or trying to entertain goats and keep as many of them around as he possibly can. That's not the role of a pastor. The role of any pastor or teacher, whether you speak in front of an entire assembly or a Sunday school class with children or adults, is simply to get out of the way and by the Word of God, point to somebody else. That's the role of a preacher or teacher. That's your role at work. That's your role in your neighborhood. That's your role with your family, among your friends, with your kids. Just to get out of the way and bear witness and testimony to the one who is the light. You don't have to perform miracles. But you and I can all say, look, I know this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once walked in darkness, but now I walk in the light of life. I once was dead, but now I am spiritually alive. And I can tell you who did that. That's what John did. He just bore witness to the light. Love the simplicity of that. In order that all might believe through Him. Not through Christ, but through John the Baptist. We believe on Christ through the testimony of John the Baptist and others because Christ is the object of our faith. John came to bear witness to the light so that all might believe through Him. In order to make straight the way of the Lord. He came and He baptized people with a baptism of repentance. We're going to deal with this in coming weeks because there's a lot of confusion about John the Baptist. He came to baptize people with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. He is coming. He is here. He has arrived. Now you need to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's on. You're right there. Turn from your sins to prepare people to receive the one who was the light. That's what he came to do. That was his purpose. Now, third, I want you to look at his place. Verse 8 and verse 9. 
John was not that light. But he came to testify about the light. And that's the true light which coming into the world enlightens all men. John was not the light. This seems to be a necessary and intentional correction by John, the apostle, about John the Baptist. Even into the second century, there was a group of people who followed John's teachings and who were loyal cultists in a sense. Um, you remember in Acts chapter 19, there were disciples of John the Baptist who had been baptized in John's baptism 30 years after Jesus had showed up on the scene and died, been buried, and rose again and ascended back to heaven. 30 years after the Spirit of God had been given, there was a group of disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus saying, we've been baptized in John's baptism, but we didn't know that the one who was promised had actually come. Even into the second century, so almost a hundred years after John the Baptist, there was a group of men who revered this man and elevated this man and were cult-like followers of John the Baptist. And so John's John the, John the Apostle's writing in John chapter 1 seems intend, intended to correct any misunderstanding that you and I might have about John the Baptist. Though John the Baptist was a great man, he was not the light. He was not the light. Great man, yes, but not the Word made flesh. And then you see through John's Gospel these self-minimizing statements that John the Baptist makes concerning himself. Look down at John chapter 1, verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 24 or 25. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. See that self-deprecating, self-minimizing statement that he makes? Look down at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man of who, who has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. And turn over to John chapter 3. Real quickly, verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of Him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase and I must decrease. Over and over again concerning John the Baptist, you have these self-minimizing statements of himself saying, I'm not the Christ. People came to him and said, are you the one? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? All the people are responding. They're coming out and they're being baptized and they're repenting. Tell us, are you the one? And he said, no. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the light. I must decrease. He must increase. There's another who's coming who's higher than I, who existed before I do, did, whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. He is the one I'm testifying about. So there seems to have been a cult following even into the second century that followed John the Baptist with a loyalty that was undeserved and unearned and unworthy of John the Baptist. And John corrects that by saying he was not the Christ. He didn't deny it. He confessed it. He said, I'm not the Christ, but there's one coming after me who is. And he said, this one is the true light, which coming into the world gives light to every man. There's a translation difference in your Bible. If you have in your lap the King James and the New King James, then you'll notice that it says, 
He is the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Every man coming into the world. The phrase coming into the world can, in the Greek, refer to either the men that are being addressed there, or it can refer to the light. That's why the NASB and the NIV says, He, the light, the true light, coming into the world, that is the light coming into the world, enlightens every man. You say, is it really distinct? Is it really a distinction? It is because in the, all of the first chapter, the emphasis is on the light coming into the world. Verse 10, He came into the world. Verse 11, He came into His own. Verse 14, The Word became flesh. And the emphasis in the whole chapter, the whole passage, is on the light, the Word coming into the world. And I think it's the same here in verse 9. He is the light who coming into the world gives light to all men. Now what does John mean when he says that Christ illumines or enlightens, gives light to all men? Does He give light to all men without exception and all men equally? And in what sense is He the light or give light to all men? Let me give you two non-possibilities. Some would say, a universalist who believes everybody's going to be saved in the end, would say that He comes into the world and He gives the light of salvation to every man so that every man who has received that light of salvation will be saved. Whether he believes on Buddha or Muhammad or Jesus or Zoroaster or any other figure. He has received enough light that that light gives salvation light to all men. Is that what John is saying? No, because it contradicts the rest of the book which talks about people perishing, and it also contradicts the rest of Scripture. Here's the second thing that it does not mean. It does not mean that Christ gives enough light to all men that they can then, by an act of their own will, an act of their own mind, an act of their own being, respond and be saved or make themselves good enough to be saved. This would be an idea that is uh, popular in Roman Catholicism, for instance. And that is the teaching that though man has fallen, God has given man enough grace, enough enlightenment, that he can from there pull himself up on his own bootstraps and work his way to heaven. And that's not what this is talking about. There's a third possibility, and here's what I think it means. That Christ is the only light for all men. And not all men without exception, all men without distinction. There's not one light for Jews and another for Gentiles and another light for Muslims and another light for utter pagans and another light for Zoroastrians, another light for New Agers. There's not multiple lights. There's only one light who is the one true light. And if any man ever receives any light, it comes from the one true light. So he is in that sense the one who is the light who gives light to every man. Because if any man gets saved, if any man is enlightened, it is because he has received light from that one source. It is a statement as to the narrowness and the uniqueness of Christ. That is why he calls him the true light in distinction from all of the false lights. There are false lights in the world. False teachers, false religions, false prophets, false truths. There are flickers of light. There are lights which lead us astray. Satan appears as an angel of light. All of those are false lights. But there is one true light who is the light for all men, Jews and Gentiles. Men without distinction from every tribe and every kindred and tongue on the face of the planet. And if any man comes to the light, he is the one light that is available to all men and all men must come to that light because he's the true light. He's the true light, distinct and separate from all the false lights. And he's the true light who is distinct and separate from all of the Old Testament lights. 
And by Old Testament lights, I mean the ceremonies and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the offerings. All of those things pointed to Christ. Those were lights in a sense. But Jesus is the true light. He's the true light that gives light to all men. So if all men, any man, will be saved, he must come to that one true light. Because that alone is the source of salvation offered across the board for all of humanity. Now let me wrap all of this up by making two observations. The first is this. Does it not testify to the blindness of man in his fallen condition, in his natural state, that when the true light, who dwells in light unapproachable, who is the essence of light, who is blinding light, who is light in its fullness, when he stepped into human history on the stage of human history, God had to send somebody to say, this is the light. Is that not a testimony to how blind you and I are in our darkened, sinful state? That when He who is light unapproachable came into history, that we had to have somebody to tap us on the shoulder and say, this is the one, this is the light. You know what type of people have to be told when the lights are on? Blind people. They don't know whether the lights are on in the room or not. Humanity blinded by its sin, blinded in its sin, could not see the true light for who He was. And what a testimony it is to our darkened understanding, our depraved hearts, our sinful and blinded eyes, that when the true light came, God had to send somebody to announce it to us so that we would know who it was. How darkened we are. Second observation is this. And this, I think, is preaching to the choir. There's only one true light. There's only one true light. You and I have to be careful that we don't mistake all of the lights that Satan offers to us for the true light. We are offered a smorgasbord of lights out there. Varying degrees of brightness, varying sources, varying levels of truth. But there's only one true light. And you and I as Christians have to recognize and understand and follow after that one true light. This is a call to... Children of God to be discerning about lights. Because Satan appears as an angel of light. And he can do that masquerading in light and masquerading as the light in order to deceive us. And we need to be discerning regarding those things which are true and those things which are false. And who is the true light and what is the false light? Because if you spend your life pursuing a false light and you have never come to the true light, who is Jesus Christ, then you will perish in utter darkness. And you will perish in utter darkness because you were foolish enough to pursue a light that was not the true light. So, child of God, be discerning. And understand there's one true light. Not all lights are equal. And the easiest way to deceive a child of God is for somebody to show up on the scene and to pretend to be the true light or to try and masquerade as true light. That is Satan's greatest ploy of deception to deceive us, to trick us, and to get us off track. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, we thank You for Your grace. Thank You for sending the true light into the world who is the light of men. And Father, if there are people amongst our midst today who have never turned to that true light, may they indeed come to understand how darkened they are, how blind they are, and how needful they are, that they know the light, that they love the light, that they respond to that light. 
You have given the testimony not just of John, but of your word, of the apostles, of history, of the Old Testament prophets, and the Psalms, and the law, all of it pointing to Christ. And if we are to reject that true light, then we are without excuse. And we are double damnable. Because we have rejected the testimony not just of your word, but of your Son. And so we ask God that you would convict hearts and open eyes. And may the God of this world not have his way in blinding those who do not see and do not know that light. May you be pleased and glorified to draw men and women to yourself and give us grace, we ask, to testify concerning that light and to simply point to the one who is the true light and help us not to stand in the way of that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.